0: Hello everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and welcome back to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales and a Brand New Year in 2020. Thanks to all of you for sharing our show, for reviewing our show, and for being there with us in these past five years. It's been a wonderful, wonderful trip, and we keep discovering new writers, new authors, and great stories. I thought we'd start off 2020 with a real adventure from H. Ryder Haggard called Long Odds. The story which is narrated in the following pages came to me from the lips of my old friend Alan Quartermain, or Hunter Quartermain, as we used to call him in South Africa. He told it to me one evening when I was stopping with him at the place he bought in Yorkshire. Shortly after that, the death of his only son so unsettled him that he immediately left England, accompanied by two companions, his old fellow voyagers, Sir Henry Curtis and Captain Good and has now utterly vanished into the dark heart of Africa. He is persuaded that a white people, of which he has heard rumors all his life, exist somewhere in the highlands of the vast, still unexplored interior, and his great ambition is to find them before he dies. This is the wild quest upon which he and his companions have departed, and from which I shrewdly suspect they never will return. One letter only have I received from the old gentleman, dated from a mission station high up in the Tana, a river on the east coast, about three hundred miles north of Zanzibar. In it, he says that they have gone through many hardships and adventures, but are alive and well, and have found traces which go far toward making him hope that the results of their wild quest may be a magnificent and unexampled discovery. I greatly fear, however, that all he has discovered is death, for this letter came a long while ago, and no one has heard a single word of the party since. They have totally vanished. It was on the last evening of my stay at his house that he told the ensuing story to me and Captain Good, who was dining with him. He had eaten his dinner and drunk two or three glasses of Old Port, just to help Good and myself to the end of the second bottle. It was an unusual thing for him to do, for he was a most abstemious man, having conceived, as he used to say, "'a great horror of drink from observing its effects "'upon the class of colonists, hunters, "'transport writers, and others, "'amongst whom he had passed so many years of his life. "'Consequently, the good wine took more effect on him "'than it would have done on most men, "'sending a little flush into his wrinkled cheeks "'and making him talk more freely than usual. "'Dear old man, I can see him now "'as he went limping up and down the vestibule, "'with his gray hair sticking up in scrubbing-brush fashion his shriveled yellow face, and his large dark eyes that were as keen as any hawks, and yet soft as a buck's. The whole room was hung with trophies of his numerous hunting expeditions, and he had some story about every one of them. If only he could be got to tell it! Generally he would not, for he was not very fond of narrating his own adventures. But to-night the port wine made him more communicative. "'Ah, you brute!' he said, "'stopping beneath an unusually large skull of a lion "'which was fixed just over the mantelpiece. "'Beneath a long row of guns, "'its jaws distended to their utmost width. "'Ah, you brute! "'You've given me a lot of trouble for the last dozen years, "'and will, I suppose, to my dying day. "'Tell us the yarn, Quartermain,' said Good. "'You've often promised to tell me, and you never have.' "'Eh, you'd better not ask me to,' he answered, for it is the longest one. All right, I said, the evening is young, and there is some more port. This adjured, he filled his pipe from a jar of coarse-cut boor tobacco that was always standing on the mantelpiece, and still walking up and down the room, he began. It was, I think, in the March of sixty-nine that I was up in Sikukuni's country. It was just after old Sequati's time and Siku Kuni had gotten into power. I forget how. Anyway, I was there. I would heard that the Bapiti people had brought down an enormous quantity of ivory from the interior, and so I started with a wagonload of goods and came straight away from Middleburg to try and trade some of it. It was a risky thing to go into the country so early on account of the fever, but I knew that there were one or two others after that lot of ivory, so I determined to have a try for it and take my chance of fever. "'I had become so tough from continual knocking about "'that I did not set it down at much. "'Well, I got on all right for a while. "'It was a wonderfully beautiful piece of bush veldt "'with great ranges of mountains running through it "'and round granite copies starting up here and there, "'looking out like sentinels over the rolling waste of bush. "'But it is very hot, hot as a stewpan, "'and when I was there that march, "'which, of course, is autumn in this part of Africa,' The whole place reeked of fever. Every morning as I trekked along down by the Oliphant River, I used to creep from the wagon at dawn and look out. But there was no river to be seen, only a long line of billows of what looked like the finest cotton wool tossed up lightly with a pitchfork. It was the fever mist. Out from among the scrub, too, came little spirals of vapor, as though there were hundreds of tiny fires alight in it reek rising from thousands of tons of rotting vegetation. It was a beautiful place, but the beauty was the beauty of death, and all those lines and blots of vapor wrote one great word across the surface of the country, and that word was fever. It was a dreadful year of illness that I came. I remember to one little crawl of knob noses, and I went up to it to see if I could get some maz, which you may know to be curdled buttermilk and a few mealies. As I got near I was struck with the silence of the place. No children began to chatter, and no dogs barked. Nor could I see any native sheep or cattle. The place, though it had evidently been recently inhabited, was as still as the bush round it, and some guinea-fowl got up out of the prickly pear bushes right at the crawl gate. I remember that I hesitated a little before going in. There was such an air of desolation about the spot. Nature never looks desolate where man has not yet laid his hand upon her breast. She is only lovely, but when man has been, and has passed away, then she looks desolate. Well, I passed into the crawl, and went up to the principal hut. In front of the hut was something with an old sheepskin rug or kaross thrown over it. I stooped down and drew off the rug, and then shrank back amazed, for under it was the body of a young woman, recently dead." For a moment I thought of turning back, but my curiosity overcame me. So going past the dead woman, I went down on my hands and knees and crept into the hut. It was so dark that I could not see anything, though I could smell a great deal. So I lit a match. It was a tan sticker match, and burnt slowly and dimly, and as the light gradually increased, I made out what I took to be a family of people, men, women, and children. Fast asleep, presently my match burnt up, brightly, and I saw that they, too, Five of them altogether were quite dead. "'One was a baby. "'I dropped the match in a hurry "'and was making my way out of the hut as hard as I could go "'when I caught sight of two bright eyes staring out of a corner. "'Thinking it was a wild cat or some such animal, "'I redoubled my haste, "'when suddenly a voice near the eyes began first to mutter "'and then to send up a succession of awful yells. "'Hastily I lit another match "'and perceived that the eyes belonged to an old woman, "'wrapped up in a greasy leather garment. "'Taking her by the arm, "'I dragged her out, "'for she could not, or would not, "'come by herself, "'and the stench was overpowering me. "'Such a sight as she was, "'a bag of bones, "'covered over with black, shriveled parchment. "'The only white thing about her "'was her wool, "'and she seemed to be pretty well dead, "'except for her eyes and her voice. "'She thought that I was a devil "'come to take her, "'and that's why she yelled so.' I got her down to the wagon and gave her a tot of cape smoke and then, as soon as it was ready, poured about a pint of beef tea down her throat made from the flesh of a blue builderbeast I'd killed the day before. And after that, she brightened up wonderfully. She could talk Zulu. Indeed, it turned out that she'd run away from Zululand in T'Chaka's time. And she told me that all the people whom I'd seen had died of fever. When they died, the other inhabitants of the corral had taken the cattle and gone away, leaving the poor old woman who was helpless from age and infirmity to perish of starvation or disease, as the case might be. She had been sitting there for three days among the bodies when I found her. I took her on to the next crawl and gave the headman a blanket to look after her, promising it my parting with two blankets for the sake of such a worthless old creature. "'Why did I not leave her in the bush?' he asked. "'Those people carry the doctrine of the survival of the fittest to its extreme, you see.' It was the night after I'd get rid of the old woman that I made my first acquaintance with my friend yonder, and he nodded toward the skull that seemed to be grinning down at us in the shadow of a wide mantel shelf. I had trekked from dawn till eleven o'clock, long trek, but I wanted to get on, and then had turned the oxen out to graze, sending the verlooper down to look after them, meaning to inspan again about six o'clock, and trek with the moon till ten. Then I got into the wagon and had a good sleep till half past two or so in the afternoon, when I rose and cooked some meat and had my dinner, washing it down with a pannikin of black coffee, for it was difficult to get preserved milk in those days. Just as I had finished, and the driver, a man called Tom, was washing up the things, in comes the young scoundrel of a Verlooper driving one ox before him. Where are the other oxen? I asked. Coos," he said. "Coos, Chief! The other oxen have gone away.' I turned my back around for a moment, and when I looked around again they were all gone except Captain here, who was rubbing his back against a tree. "'You mean that you've been asleep, and let them stray, you villain. I will rub your back against a stick,' I answered, feeling very angry, for it was not a pleasant prospect to be stuck up in that fever trap for a week or so while we were hunting for the oxen.' "'Off you go, and you too, Tom. "'And mind you don't come back till you've found them. "'They've trekked back along the Middleburg Road, "'and they're a dozen miles off by now. "'Now no words. Go, both of you.'" We'll return to this story right after our brief sponsor messages. Tom, the driver, swore and caught the lad a hearty kick, which he richly deserved. And then, having tied old Capteen up to the boom of the ream, they took their assigays and sticks and started. I would have gone too, only I knew that somebody must look after the wagon, and I did not like to leave either of the boys with it at night. I was in a very bad temper indeed, although I was pretty well used to these sort of occurrences, and soothed myself by taking a rifle and going to shoot. For a couple of hours I poked about without seeing anything I could get a shot at, but at least, just as I was again within seventy yards of the wagon, I put up an old Impala ram from behind a mimosa thorn. He ran straight for the wagon, It was not till he was passing within a few feet of it that I could get a decent shot at him. Then I pulled and caught him halfway down the spine. Over he went, dead as a doornail. And a pretty shot it was. Though I had not to say it. This little incident put me into rather a better temper, especially as the buck had rolled right against the after part of the wagon. So I had only to gut him, fix a ream around his legs, and haul him up. By the time I had done this, the sun was down and the full moon was up "'and a beautiful moon it was. "'And then there came that wonderful hush "'which sometimes falls over the African bush "'in the early hours of the night. "'No beast was moving, "'and no bird called. "'Not a breath of air stirred the quiet trees, "'and the shadows didn't even quiver. "'They only grew. "'It was very oppressive and very lonely, "'but there was not a sign of the cattle or the boys. "'I was quite thankful for the society of old Captain, "'who was lying down contentedly against the diesel-boom,' "'chewing the cud with a good conscience. "'Presently, however, "'Captain began to get restless. First he snorted. "'Then he got up and snorted again. "'I could not make it out. "'So, like a fool, "'I got down off the wagon box "'to have a look round, "'thinking it might be the lost oxen coming. "'Next instant I regretted it, "'for all of a sudden I heard a roar "'and saw something yellow flash past me "'and light on poor Captain.' Then came a bellow of agony from the ox and a crunch as the lion put his teeth through the poor brute's neck and I began to understand what had happened. My rifle was at the wagon and my first thought was to get hold of it and I turned and made a bolt for it. I got my foot on the wheel and flung my body forward onto the wagon and there I stopped as if I were frozen and no wonder for as I was about to spring up I heard the lion behind me and next second I felt the brute I, as plainly as I could feel this table, I felt him, I say, sniffing at my left leg that was hanging down. My word! I did feel queer. I don't think I ever felt so strange before. I dared not move for the life of me. And the odd thing was that I seemed to lose power over my leg, which developed an insane sort of inclination to to kick out of its own mere motion. Just as hysterical people want to laugh when they ought to be particularly solemn. While the lion sniffed, "'and sniffed, beginning at my ankle "'and slowly nosing his way up to my thigh. "'I thought he was going to get hold then, "'but he did not. "'He only growled softly and went back to the ox. "'Shifting my head a little, I got a full view of him. "'He was about the biggest lion I ever saw, "'and I've seen a great many, "'and he had a most tremendous black mane. "'What his teeth were like, you can see. "'Look there. "'Pretty big ones, ain't they? Altogether, he was a magnificent animal.' "'and as I lay sprawled on the tongue of the wagon, "'it occurred to me that he would look uncommonly well in a cage. "'He stood there by the carcass of poor Captain, "'and deliberately disemboweled him as neatly as a butcher could have done. "'All this while I dared not move, "'for he kept lifting his head and keeping an eye on me "'as he licked his bloody chops. "'When he had cleaned captain out, he opened his mouth and roared, "'and I'm not exaggerating when I say that that sound shook the wagon.' Instantly there came back an answering roar. Oh my God, I thought. That's his mate. Hardly was the thought out of my head when I caught sight in the moonlight of the lioness bounding along through the long grass and after her a couple of cubs about the size of mastiffs. She stopped within a few feet of my head and stood and waved her tail and fixed me with her glowing yellow eyes. But just as I thought that it was all over she turned and began to feed on Captain. "'and so did the cubs. "'There were four of them within eight feet of me, "'growling and quarreling, rending and tearing, "'and crunching poor captain's bones. "'And there I lay, shaking with terror, "'and the cold perspiration pouring out of me, "'feeling like another Daniel come to judgment "'in a new sense of the phrase. "'Presently the cubs had eaten their fill "'and began to get restless. "'One went round to the back of the wagon "'and pulled at the impala buck that hung there, "'and the other came round my way "'and commenced the sniffing game at my leg.' Indeed, he did more than that, for my trouser being hitched up a little, he began to lick the bare skin with his rough tongue. The more he licked, the more he liked it, to judge from his increased vigor and the loud purring noise he made. Then I knew that the end had come, for in another second his file-like tongue would have rasped through the skin of my leg, which was luckily pretty tough, and have drawn the blood, then there'd be no chance for me. So I just lay there, and thought of my sins, and prayed to the Almighty— and thought that, after all, life had been a very enjoyable thing. And then all of a sudden I heard a crashing of bushes, and the shouting and whistling of men, and there were the two boys coming back with the cattle, which they had found trekking along all together. The lions lifted their heads and listened, and then without a sound, bounded off. And I fainted. The lions came back no more that night, and by the next morning my nerves had got pretty straight again, but I was full of wrath when I thought of all that I had gone through at the hands, or rather noses, of those four lions and of the fate of my after-ox, Capteen. He had been a splendid ox, and I was very fond of him. So wroth was I that, like a fool, I determined to attack the whole family of them. It was worthy of a greenhorn out on his first hunting trip, but I did it nevertheless. Accordingly, after breakfast, having rubbed some oil upon my leg, which was very sore from the cub's tongue, I took the driver, Tom, who did not half like the job, and having armed myself with an ordinary double number 12 smoothbore, the first breech loader I ever had, I started out. I took the smoothbore because it shot a bullet very well, and my experience has been that a round ball from a smoothbore is quite as effective against a lion as an express bullet. The lion is soft and not a difficult animal to finish if you hit him anywhere in the body. A buck takes far more killing. Well, I started, and the first thing I set to work to do was to try to make out whereabouts the brutes lay up for the day. About 300 yards from the wagon was a crest of a rise covered with single mimosa trees, dotted about in park-like fashion. And beyond this was a stretch of open plain running down to a dry pan or waterhole, which covered about an acre of ground and was densely clothed with reeds, now in the sear and yellow leaf. From the further edge of this pan, the ground sloped up again to a great cleft, or nulla, which had been cut out by the action of the water, and was pretty thickly sprinkled with bush, among which grew some large trees. I forget of what type. And it at once struck me that the dry pan would be a likely place to find my friends in, as there is nothing a lion is fonder of than lying up in the reeds, through which he can see things without being seen himself. Accordingly thither I went and prospected. Before I had got halfway round the pan, I found the remains of a blue builder-beast that had evidently been killed within the last three or four days, and partially devoured by lions. And from other indications about, I was soon assured that if the family were not in the pan that day, they had spent a good deal of their spare time there. But if there, the question was how to get them out, where it was clearly impossible to think of going in after them, unless one was quite determined to commit suicide. Now there was a strong wind blowing from the direction of the wagon, across the reedy pan toward the bush-clad kloof or dunga, and this first gave me the idea of firing the reeds, which, as I think I told you, were pretty dry. Accordingly, Tom took some matches and began starting little fires to the left, and I did the same to the right. But the reeds were still green at the bottom, and we should never have got them well alight had it not been for the wind, which grew stronger and stronger as the sun climbed higher and forced the fire into them. At last, after half an hour's trouble, the flames got a hold and began to spread out like a fan, whereupon I went round to the farther side of the pan to wait for the lions, standing well out in the open, as we stood at the copse today when you shot the woodcock. It was a rather risky thing to do, but I used to be so sure of my shooting in those days that I did not so much mind the risk. Scarcely had I got round when I heard reeds parting before the onward rush of some animal. Now for it, said I, and on it came. I could see that it was yellow and prepared for action, which, instead of a lion, outbounded a beautiful reebok which had been lying in the shelter of the pan. It must, by the way, have been a reebok of peculiarly confiding nature to lay itself down with the lion, like the lamb of prophecy, but I suppose the reeds were thick, and that it kept a long way off. Well, I let the reebok go, and it went like the wind, and I kept my eyes fixed upon the reeds. The fire was burning like a furnace now, the flames crackling and roaring as they bit into the reeds, sending spouts of fire twenty feet or more into the air and making the hot air dance above it in a way that was perfectly dazzling. But the reeds were still half green and created an enormous quantity of smoke which came rolling toward me like a curtain lying very low on account of the wind. Presently, above the crackling of the fire, I heard a startled roar, and then another, and another, So the lions were at home. I was beginning to get excited now, for as you fellows know, there's nothing in experience to warm up your nerves like a lion at close quarters, unless it's a wounded buffalo. And I got still more so when I made out through the smoke that the lions were all moving about on the extreme edge of the reeds. Occasionally they would pop their heads out like rabbits from a burrow, and then, catching sight of me, standing about fifty yards out, draw them back again. I knew that it must be getting pretty warm behind them, and that they could not keep the game up for long. And I was not mistaken, for suddenly all four of them broke cover together, the old black main lion leading by a few yards. I never saw a more splendid sight in all my hunting experience than those four lions bounding across the veldt, overshadowed by the dense pall of smoke and backed by the fiery furnace of the burning reeds. We'll return to this story right after our brief sponsor messages. I reckoned that they would pass on their road to the bushy kloof, within about five or twenty yards of me. So, taking a long breath, I got my gun well onto the lion's shoulder, the black-maned one, so as to allow for an inch or two of motion and catch him to the heart. I was on, dead on, and my finger was just beginning to tighten on the trigger, when suddenly I went blind. A bit of reed ash had drifted into my right eye. I danced and rubbed, and succeeded in clearing it more or less just in time to see the tail of the last lion banishing round the bushes up the clove. If ever a man was mad, I was that man. It was too bad, and such a shot in the open, too. However, I was not going to be beaten, so I just turned and marched for the Kloof. Tom, the driver, begged and implored me not to go, but though as a general rule I never pretend to be very brave, which I am not. I was determined that I would either kill those lions, or they would kill me. So I told Tom that he need not come unless he liked But I was going, and being a plucky fellow, a Swazi by birth, he shrugged his shoulders, muttered that I was mad or bewitched, and followed doggedly in my tracks. We soon got to the kloof, which was about three hundred yards in length, and but sparsely wooded, and then the real fun began. There might be a lion behind every bush. There certainly were four lions somewhere. The delicate question was, where I peeped and picked and looked in every possible direction, with my heart in my mouth, and was at last rewarded by catching a glimpse of something yellow moving behind a bush at the same moment from another bush opposite me, burst one of the cubs and galloped back toward the burned-out pan. I whipped round and let drive a snapshot that tipped him head over heels, breaking his back within two inches of the root of the tail, and there he lay, helpless but glaring. Tom afterward killed him with his assegai. I opened the breech of the gun and hurriedly pulled out the old case, which, to judge from what ensued, must, I suppose, have burst and left a portion of its fabric sticking to the barrel. At any rate, when I tried to get in the new case, it would only enter half and would you believe it, this was the moment that the lioness, attracted no doubt by the outcry of her cub, chose to put in an appearance. And there she stood, twenty paces or so from me, lashing her tail, and looking just as wicked as it's possible to conceive. Slowly I stepped backward, trying to push in one new case, and as I did so, she moved on in little runs, dropping down after each run. The danger was imminent, and the case would not go in. At the moment I oddly enough thought of the cartridge-maker, whose name I will not mention, then hoped that if the lion got me, some punishment would overtake him. It would not go in, so I tried to pull it out. It would not come out either, and my gun was useless if I could not shut it to use the other barrel." I might as well have had no gun. Meanwhile, I was walking backward, keeping my eye on the lioness, who was creeping forward on her belly without a sound, but lashing her tail and keeping her eye on me, and in it I saw she was coming in a few seconds more. I dashed my wrist and the palm of my hand against the brass rim of the cartridge till the blood poured from them. And look, here are the scars of it to this day. Here quarterman held up his right hand to the light and showed us four or five white wounds just where the wrist is set into the hand. But it was not of the slightest use, he went on. The cartridge would not move. I only hope that no other man will ever be put in such an awful position. The lioness gathered herself together, and I gave myself up for lost, when suddenly Tom shouted out from somewhere in my rear, You are walking on to the wounded cub. Turn to the right. I had the sense, dazed as I was, to take the hint and slewing around at right angles, but still keeping my eyes on the lioness, I continued my backward walk. To my intense relief, with a low growl, she straightened herself, turned, and bounded off further up the kloof. "'Come on, Incos," said Tom. "'Let's get back to the wagon.' "'All right, Tom,' I answered. "'I will when I've killed these three other lions. "'For by this time I was bent on shooting them "'as I never remember being bent on anything before it since.' "'You can go if you like, or you can get up a tree.' "'And he considered that. "'And then he very wisely got up a tree. "'I wish that I had done the same. "'Meanwhile I had found my knife, "'which had an extractor in it, "'and succeeded after some difficulty "'in hauling out the case "'which had so nearly been the cause of my death, "'and removing the obstruction in the barrel. "'It was very little thicker than a postage stamp, "'certainly not thicker than a piece of writing paper. "'This done, I loaded the gun,' Bound a handkerchief round my wrist and hand to staunch the flowing of the blood, and started on again. I had noticed that the lioness went into a thick green bush, or rather cluster of bushes, growing near the water, for there was a little stream running down the kloof, and about fifty yards higher up for this I made. When I got there, however, I could see nothing, so I took up a big stone and threw it into the bushes. I believed that it hit the other cub, for out it came with a rush, giving me a broadside shot, of which I promptly availed myself, knocking it over dead. Out, too, came the lioness, like a flash of light. But quick as she went, I managed to put the other bullet into her ribs, so that she rolled right over three times like a shot rabbit. I instantly got two more cartridges into the gun, and as I did so, the lioness rose again and came crawling toward me on her forepaws, roaring and groaning, and with such an expression of diabolical fury on her countenance as I've never seen. I shot her again through the chest, and she fell over onto her side, now quite dead. This was the first and last time that I'd ever killed a brace of lions right and left, and what is more, I'd never heard of anybody else doing it. Naturally, I was considerably pleased with myself, and having again loaded up, I went on to look for the black-maned beauty who had killed Capteen. Slowly, and with the greatest care, I proceeded up the Kloof, searching every bush and tuft of grass as I went, it was wonderfully exciting work, for I never was sure from one moment to another that he would be on me. I took comfort, however, from the reflection that a lion rarely attacks a man. Rarely, I say. Sometimes he does, as you will see, unless he's cornered or wounded. I must have been nearly an hour hunting after that lion. Once I thought I saw something move in a clump of tambuki grass, but I couldn't be sure, and when I trot out the grass, I couldn't find him. At last I worked up to the head of the kloof, which made a cul-de-sac. It was formed of a wall of rock about fifty feet high. Down this rock trickled a little waterfall, and in front of it, some seventy feet from its face, was a great piled-up mass of boulders, and in the crevices, and on the top of which grew ferns, grasses, and stunted bushes. This mass was about twenty-five feet high. The sides of the kloof here were also very steep. Well, I came to the top of the nullah and looked all around. No signs of the lion. Evidently I'd either overlooked him farther down, or he'd escaped right away. It was very vexatious, but still three lions were not a bad bag for one gun before dinner, and I was fain to be content. Accordingly I departed back again, making my way round the isolated pillar of boulders, beginning to feel, as I did so, that I was pretty well done up with excitement and fatigue, "'and should be more so before I had skinned those three lions. "'When I got, as nearly as I could judge, "'about eighteen yards past the pillar or massive boulders, "'I turned to have another look round. "'I have a pretty sharp eye, "'but I couldn't see anything at all. "'But then, on a sudden, "'I saw something sufficiently alarming. "'On the top of the massive boulders, "'opposite to me, "'standing out clear against the rock beyond, "'was the huge black-maned lion.' He had been crouching there, and now arose as though by magic. There he stood, lashing his tail, just like a living reproduction of the animal on the gateway of the Northumberland house that I've seen a picture of. But he did not stand long. Before I could fire, before I could do more than get the gun to my shoulder, he sprang straight up and out from the rock, and driven by the impetus of that one mighty bound, came hurtling through the air toward me. Heavens, how grand he looked! and how awful! High into the air he flew, describing a great arch, and just as he touched the highest point of his spring, I fired. I did not dare to wait, for I saw that he would clear the whole space and land right upon me. Without a sight, almost without aim, I fired, as one would fire a snapshot at a snipe. The bullet told, for I distinctly heard its thud above the rushing sound caused by the passage of the lion through the air. Next second I was swept to the ground, and luckily I fell into a low, creeper-clad bush, which broke the shock, and the lion was on top of me. And the next those great white teeth of his had met in my thigh, I heard them grate against the bone. I yelled out in agony, for I did not feel in the least benumbed and happy, like Dr. Livingston, whom, by the way, I knew very well, and gave myself up for dead. But suddenly, at that moment, the lion's grip on my thigh loosened, and he stood over me, swaying to and fro his huge mouth, from which the blood was gushing, wide open. And then he roared, and the sound shook the rocks. To and fro he swung, and then the great head dropped on me, knocking all the breath from my body, and he was dead. My bullet had entered in the center of his chest and passed out onto the right side of the spine about halfway down the back. The pain of my wound kept me from fainting, and as soon as I got my breath, I managed to drag myself from under him. Thank heavens his great teeth had not crushed my thigh bone, but I was losing a great deal of blood, and had it not been for the timely arrival of Tom, with whose aid I got the handkerchief from my wrist and tied it round my leg, twisting it tight with a stick, I think that I should have bled to death. Well, it was a just reward for my folly in trying to tackle a family of lions single-handed. The odds were too long. I've been lame ever since, and shall be to my dying day. In the month of March, the wound always troubles me a great deal, and every three years it breaks out raw. I need scarcely add that I never traded the lot of ivory at Sikukum's. Another man got it, a German, and made five hundred pounds out of it after paying expenses. I spent the next month on the broad of my back and was a cripple for six months after that. And now I've told you the yarn, so I will have a drop of Hollands, and go to bed. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We started off this year with a little bit of adventure, and there's a whole lot of variety coming up in the weeks to come. Thanks for being great fans. Please share our show with a friend and send us a review when you get a chance. We'll see you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Everybody stay safe.